Some of you may have heard of a scholar named Robert Alter. Robert Alter is a professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at Cal Berkeley and has been for over 50 years. As far as I know, he's still there in his 80s teaching. Um, Alter has translated, he's one of the leading translators in the world. Anyone who does any work in the Hebrew Bible or in the Old Testament or with ancient Near Eastern languages knows who Robert Alter is. He's a monumental figure in the field. He has translated the whole David story with a commentary. He's translated the five books of Moses with a commentary. He's translated the book of Psalms with a commentary. He's translated the book of Genesis. He's translated Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes with a commentary. Now, you need to understand, there are commentators and there are translators. Alter is both. He's translated the former prophets, judges, Samuel, kings, with a translation and a commentary. He's translated Song of Songs, Ruth, Esther, Jonah, and Daniel with a commentary. And in 2018, in his 80s, he released a monumental work of scholarship simply called the Hebrew Bible, where he translated the whole Old Testament with a commentary. Alter says this about the text we're about to embark on in 1 Samuel 16. He says, The story of David is probably the greatest single narrative representation in antiquity of a human life evolving by slow stages through time, shaped and altered by the pressures of political life, public institutions, family, the impulses of body and spirit, the eventual sad decay of the flesh, the most unflinching insight into the cruel processes of history and into human behavior warped by the pursuit of power. Nowhere, he says, nowhere is the Bible's astringent, meaning it's, it's strict, it's terse. The Bible's terse narrative economy, its ability to define characters, and to etch revelatory dialogue and a few telling strokes more brilliantly displayed than here. That from Robert Alter about the David story. Robert Alter, who I might mention, is Jewish and an atheist, but who reads the text more carefully, more reverently, more closely, more diligently than many believers. So, today, in 1 Samuel 16, we come to the beginning of one of history and literature's greatest stories, the rise and the reign of David. And at the end of chapter 15, Samuel and Saul, they part ways for a final time. Saul is grieved over the tragedy that the kingship, well, Saul brought it on, Samuel is grieved over the tragedy that the kingship has become. And even the Lord, we're told, even the Lord regretted that he made Saul king. And right before our text, we're told, and Samuel did not see Saul again to the day of his death. And the reference to seeing Samuel did not see Saul introduces the key idea which drives the text we're looking at today. This passage is all about seeing or perspective, seeing in the sense of discerning, evaluating, choosing. 
The root for seeing can sometimes is translated as providing or choosing or appearing. And it's used pervasively throughout this chapter. And so it's a text. It's a text which provokes a series of questions. How do we see? How do we see the world? The world is a kind of text. And it needs the loving, close, careful, nuanced reading that Alter gives to Hebrew texts. I mean, a worldview helps here, but it can also create blinders and blind spots and lock a person down into certain ways of seeing. On what basis are we making evaluations or judgments? What is our perception of God and the world? Are we seers? That's another way to ask this question. And the word echoes with the word for prophets in the Old Testament who are called seers. We're to be seers of God. Are we people who see the traces of God's story in the world with all of its ironies and paradoxes? Right? This requires having some sense of the biblical God's constant delight in overturning convention and the expected order. Right? The God who uses weak and despised things to shame or bring to, to naught the things that are powerful. How do you see? We can't take it for granted that we're seeing aright. We rarely see even ourselves aright. Or you can see in a certain way where we're using the wrong metrics, metrics of success or prestige or some business standard to evaluate what God is doing. Seeing requires a renewal of the mind, an illumination, an interior reorientation which happens when someone gets into the text of the Scripture, what Karl Barth called the strange new world of the Bible. And so also crucial here is the question, how do we see and judge people? Because people are, are also a kind of text that have to be read. And our opinions... Our opinions of others, more often than we realize, are based on things like looks or social and economic standing, clothes, body language, force of personality or lack of force of personality. We stay on the outskirts of other people's lives and we keep them on the outskirts of ours. When there's an ocean of depth there, I saw this funny little promo, I think it's for a TV show, the other day, where a man and a woman are at dinner together. And the man says to her, he says, I've really enjoyed getting to know you. The more I get to know, the more there is to know. And she says to him, I've really enjoyed getting to know you too. And he says, and? And she says, I think I got it. (laughs) But there is a deep, complex depth to human persons. Rare is the person who sees others in three dimensions with sympathy and with patience, 
with all the layers and complexity and nuance that any life entails. That takes too much work. So we make these summary partial judgments based on this piece of information or that piece of information. And we end up pigeonholing people, flattening out their depths. People are made in the image of God, and thus there is about the human person a kind of infinite depth, reflecting the God in whose image they are made. So, this seems important because we'll learn in this text that how you see is how you choose. This text is all about how God sees and then how, therefore, he chooses. So we'll look at the text under the two headings, the command, they're on the back inside page of your bulletin, the command and the choice. So first, the command. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord says to Samuel, so God speaks. In one sense, the, the whole text is driven by the word of God. Last, last week we saw how important listening is. Right? Listen was the, the title of last week's sermon. See. And in one sense, is the title of this one. We move from hearing people to, to seeing people. Listening right makes one a perceptive seer. We move from the ear to the eyes. Or you could say we move from literary text to the visual arts, to an aesthetic, based on listening right. So... David here is going to be appointed king, and it's going to be a divine action because it's an action that comes from God's speech. So the Lord says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Remember, Samuel was in grief. Even though he's a fierce critic of the monarchy, we can safely infer that he was fond of Saul. He met him as a young man looking after his father's donkeys. He anointed him as Israel's first king. He mentored him. He counseled him. Now, they had a few turbulent, stormy encounters, to be sure. And we'll see that they're now estranged. Yet the kingdom has already, it'll take a decade or more to work this out, but the kingdom's already been taken from from Saul. And this could be nothing less than heartbreaking for Samuel. He was in mourning. Israel has rejected its king, and now God has rejected the nation's king. So not only do you have personal anguish in Samuel, you have a sort of sense of national political dread. But the Lord opens the text by saying to Samuel, the time of mourning is over. This is a new beginning. This is a turning in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, and a major one. God here declares himself to be the Lord of the future, the God of new beginnings, the God among the ruins, the Lord of national and personal tragedies, the God of resurrection from, in this case, national death. And the new beginning that's affected here in this text is with us. The new beginning in David and his monarchy is with us and with the world to this day. And so the Lord commands Samuel, says, fill up your horn with oil, head off to see this guy named Jesse the Bethlehemite. Turns out this Jesse is a descendant of Boaz and Ruth. 
He's of the tribe of Judah. And it's this heretofore unknown and improbable man. It's of him that the Lord says, I've provided for myself. I've chosen for myself a king from among his sons. Literally, the text is, I have seen for myself a king among his sons. And so we confront this divine seeing at the outset. The Lord's seeing, as the the text will make clear, is essentially his choosing, his electing. What he foresees, he chooses. He was sovereign over the choice of Saul, but the language is different. The language of providing a king for myself is new here. With Saul, it was, you, Samuel, go make them a king. Listen to their voice. Or he would say something like this, the king you have chosen for yourself. Here it's, I have seen for myself a king. But Samuel is afraid. He's afraid to go to Bethlehem. How can I go, he says. If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Remember, they're estranged now. It is, after all, treason to anoint a new king when the current one is still sitting on the throne. God is asking Samuel here to do something deeply subversive to the existing order. And then the Lord gives the frightened Samuel some counsel. He says, take a heifer with you and tell him, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, that sounds a lot like a cover story to me. (laughs) Though Saul was also ordained in the context of a sacrifice and a meal. Now, nothing true is unspoken, but this is clearly not the whole truth of Samuel's visit here. It's not the whole truth. The seeing God is the cunning God and the shrewd God. And if you think you have the God of the Hebrew Bible figured out, you're not reading very carefully. So, the plan is for Samuel to have a sacrifice and a meal, invite Jesse to the meal, and anoint the one the Lord declares to him. So he goes to Bethlehem, the elders of the town come out to meet him, and they're trembling. They know of the estrangement between Samuel and Saul. And they realize that if Samuel does something here to undermine Saul, the city or the town, the small town that is Bethlehem, may face royal retribution. So they ask him, do you come peaceably? Samuel assures them that he has come peaceably. He gets Jesse and his sons ready. He invites them to the sacrifice. What this is, right? this is a clandestine, quasi-secret worship service in a threatening environment. And thus the word, the command, is obeyed by Samuel. And that brings us to the bulk of the text, which is the choice. That's our second point, beginning in verse 6. So, When Jesse and his sons came, Samuel looks at this son of Jesse named Eliab. Here is the theme of seeing again. He looked. He saw Eliab. And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. First impressions are dangerous to trust. And yet, people seem to rely a great deal on them. 
This creates a lot of trouble in life. Often such folks think they have some kind of mystical gut instinct about people that's virtually infallible. You ever meet someone like this? They don't. They don't have any mystical gut instinct that's virtually infallible. And it's unwise to place much weight on your surface initial impressions. Any thinking person knows that over time, they often prove to be wrong or partial or one-sided or incomplete. So in verse 7, the Lord tells Samuel, don't look. Don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Obviously, this means Eliab was impressive. Right? He was tall. He was good-looking. And even the aged and wise prophet Samuel was taken in. I mean, Samuel's not a superficial guy. We're meant to hear an echo here, right, of the tragic choice of Saul. Saul was chosen, and when he was chosen, we were told he was very handsome. And he was head and shoulders taller than the people. So here comes Eliab, another handsome and tall man, a natural-born leader. He looks presidential, Samuel thinks. This is how we operate. The surface has a profound impact on us, and there is, in one sense, no way to avoid it because we are sensory creatures. Even godly Samuel. I constantly hear of studies, right, where pretty people do better, or skinny people do better, or tall people do better, or well-dressed people have better careers. There are whole industries, right, and swarms of consultants devoted to the surface image you are projecting to branding you and its impact that's going to have on your career. David says in the Psalms that deep calls on to deep. It's also true, however, that shallow calls on to shallow. We live in that world. On the contrary, Jesus says in John 7, listen to what Jesus says Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Righteousness digs down deep because it knows that people are many splendored things. They are layered creatures. So the Lord, he's not mesmerized. He corrects Samuel's looking, Samuel's seeing. And he says, I've rejected him, meaning not from salvation, but from being king. Saul was rejected, and the Saul lookalike is rejected. Who the Lord sees is chosen. Who the Lord does not see is rejected. Now, this is straightforward enough, but we should notice like the thin ice here that Samuel is out on. His perception problem is not a minor thing. It's perilous. If God did not, by his own seeing, overrule the seeing of Samuel, Israel would have Saul act too. Right? And nations and people make the same mistakes over and over and over and over and over again. And part of it is they refuse to see properly and have their seeing and their perceiving corrected. The feedback loop is really slow, if not broken. 
it's often non-existent in people who walk around completely confident in the way they see things. So verse 7 continues, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This has been called the theme verse of the David story. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It's not just then that we tend to be shallow and superficial. That's one problem. But in the nature of the case, we can't look and can't see because we're not omniscient the way the Lord sees. Part of seeing a right is to just grasp that right there. Part of seeing a right is grasping how profoundly obscured, relativized, and, you know, from a particular kind of angle, we see things. Our perspectives are always limited. They're always provisional. They're always partial. In fact, we obscure things from within with our own sin, with our own biases. It's like we fog up our own moral glasses. Even when we're trying to be thorough, even when we're trying to see a right. This is a commonplace now, right? Various academics have spent the last few decades telling us, rightly, I think, that all human knowing is partial. All human knowing is situated. It's limited. To which we say, sure, amen. But to which we must add, God himself has a perspective and a way of seeing which is not subject to such limitations. And if we know God, our limitations won't lead us to despair, but they will caution us. They will induce humility. Even with Scripture, beloved, even with Scripture, there's more that we don't know than that we do know about God, about the creation, and about ourselves. Right? We know a slice. God gives us enough to get us home. But we are always seeing through a glass darkly. So the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart, the text tells us. This does not mean that David is chosen because he has some inherent qualities that he possesses that make him better than others. David, it will turn out, has more than a few problems with his heart. More than a few. This looking on the heart is really simply a way of saying the Lord knows those who are his. The one he sees, he elects unto service. He does this in his infinite, unerring knowledge and in his free mercy. So in this context, in the context of the rejection of Eliab, it means the Lord saves you from choosing your own saviors. Left to ourselves, we're going to choose False, starry-eyed messiahs. This text, I think, should be the theme text of every pastoral search committee in the world. Because churches are often guilty of this superficial judgment. And then wreckage follows. I have a friend who runs an older gentleman who in the South, in the PCA, runs a consulting firm that works with search committees. And you'd be surprised how often major mistakes here because the committee's main question is, is he young? Is he charismatic? Is he outgoing? Is he dynamic? 
Can he make the church grow? Right? Does he look good in skinny jeans? <laughs> I kid you not. Right? Can he walk around with one of those microphones like this? So this, this, this guy would call me up, and he would, he, he would say, such and such a church. I won't name some of these churches. Big churches in the PCA in the South just chose so-and-so to be their, their pastor. And I said, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the outside looking in, but that doesn't seem like a great fit to me. And he would say, oh, no, it's not. It's going to end disaster. It's going to end poorly. It's going to end poorly. So these things <clears throat> that committees are often looking for, or businesses, I mean, they may not be unimportant, of course, but they're not the primary things. They're not the primary things to be looking for. So eventually, in our, back to our text, a total of seven sons pass by. In all seven cases, Samuel, as the Lord's prophet, declares they're not chosen. So what's happening? Samuel's seeing is starting to align with God's seeing. See, after you make a big mistake, you have to adjust your seeing. And so in verse 11, he asks Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse says, well, there remains the youngest, the smallest, he says, the smallest. Note three things right here, right here at the text. First, David is presented as another in a long line of younger sons who get the role that should fall, even according to the Torah, should fall to the oldest son, the firstborn. It's a theme which dominates the book of Genesis, right? The normal family order and the privileges of the firstborn are constantly just stood on their head. God loves to do this kind of subversive stuff. And you see it right in the patriarchal narratives and their dysfunctional family narratives. God just picks the child you wouldn't think he'd pick. Second, David is represented as an eighth son. Seven pass by, there's one more, the eighth. That means he's a son of the, of the day of resurrection, the eighth day. He, that means he's the new beginning, and in him Israel is going to rise from the ruins, at least temporarily. And third, his smallness, his sheer insignificance, is seen in the fact that his father didn't even invite him to the party. Like some male Cinderella. Right? He's left back to take care of the sheep. The rest of us will go. So in all of this, already, already at the outset, we haven't even heard his name. The name David has not occurred in the Bible to this point. But in all this, he's already a symbol of the Lord's way of seeing and choosing. That which is weak, that which is not, to shame the things that are wise and that are. There's no ethical superiority in David. Just like there's no ethical superiority in Jacob. If anything, Esau's the more virtuous one. Jacob is the dubious and deceitful character. So, the text is not about how wonderful David's heart is. It's about God's seeing and his divine choosing. So the youngest or the smallest child is tending or keeping the sheep. And Samuel tells Jesse, go get him. And here's an incentive for you. We're not going to eat till you bring him back. So go get him. So they get David, they bring him in. And here, surprisingly, we learn something about David. It says he was ruddy, meaning he was reddish, either reddish in hair or in skin tone. And the text says he had beautiful eyes. 
another reference to the seeing or looking group of words. And though he was not tall, he was handsome. So here is an important corrective. David is attractive to look at. He has attractive eyes. Choosing the weak things is not choosing the ugly things. God loves the beautiful people too. He's not aesthetically confused. He's the source of all glory and beauty. Or, Or let me put it this way, maybe with a little more nuance. It's not that the Lord despises outward appearances. They are his gifts after all. It's just that they are not decisive. It's just that seeing the surface, seeing according to the eyes, is fine. You can learn things that way, right? Someone comes into the interview and they're disheveled and confused. and Sure, sure, you can read stuff off the surface. And it can be meaningful, important stuff. But you can often be deceived. And one must pierce the surface, not ignore the surface, but one must pierce the surface if one is to choose a right. One has to enter that deep water. So we really, you you would expect the narrative to say, and David came, and he was a thoroughly mediocre-looking human being. But it doesn't do that. It's just one of the many twists and turns and characterization things that Alter points out for you, and as do many other commentators. So the Lord immediately says, anoint him, this is the one. Samuel anoints him in the midst of his brothers. The spirit, symbolized by the oil, descends upon uh, David and rushes on him. And right there, he's named for the first time in the Bible. So the spirit's descent shows us that the Lord equips those he calls. And as the narrative continues, we will see That just like David's greater son, just like Christ himself, the Spirit comes upon David only to drive him into the wilderness. David is filled with the Spirit, and here's what happens. Over the next decade, he's hunted, and he's trapped in caves, and he's betrayed, he's exiled. Through many tribulations, he will enter into the kingship, and even then, his reign will be turbulent, and it will end in disaster. The reception of the Spirit, which remains on David and is taken from Saul, that reception means troubles coming, hardships coming. And handling that tribulation is a mark of sonship. As it was with David, so it is with Christ, and so it is with Christians. Christian means little Christ or anointed one. You heard that in the New Testament lesson this morning. We are anointed ones. We've been given the Spirit. And like David and like Jesus, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. So there's a a very important, I think, encouraging lesson here. Trial, hardship, darkness, suffering, wilderness existence, struggle, pain, perplexity, and doubt. These are not signs that God has abandoned you. They are signs of the Spirit's anointing. And that, beloved, is yet another way of seeing. These are the normal conditions in the Christian life. Suffering, then glory. They're markers on the way to glory. So I composed a little limerick. Every every young person in here, every child can get this. We can reduce the sermon to this. 
It's, here's the limerick, a little poem, little, little children's poem. To see aright is to walk by faith and not by sight. Captures the paradox, right? Seeing involves not trusting sight. To see aright is to walk by faith and not by sight. So if you're a young person in here, that's the whole sermon right there. To see aright is to walk by faith and not by sight. I mean, it's, it's an original composition. I'm not, uh, it's not Dante's Inferno. I, I understand that. But, uh, so there's a kind of scene that's necessary. A thousand years after David, in this same town, in this same town of Bethlehem, the prophet Micah predicted centuries beforehand right, that this would happen in this town. Why Bethlehem? Because it's little and insignificant. Where's your littlest son? Where's your smallest, least significant son? Let's do this in the smallest little town we can find. The Lord will set forth a choice again. The choice of the true Davidic monarch in that town. But here's the thing with Jesus. You cannot see him if you remain on the surface appearances. He looks just like a carpenter's son. He has, Isaiah says, no form or comeliness. He's not ruddy, tall, and handsome. To some, to some, he looks like a drunkard or a glutton in the Gospels. Or someone who has a demon. And he is surely not from the right place. And he has no religious credentials, no political standing. And by the way, messianic kings do not suffer. And in the end, his appearance, which unlike David's is not handsome to begin with, his appearance will be marred beyond human recognition. Right? To see him, you have to see beauty in the mangled, broken, twisted, lacerated flesh on the cross. That's the kind of new seeing. That one is the king the Lord has seen and provided for himself from the sons of Jesse. And he's the one on whom the fullness of the Spirit descended at his baptism, marking him off as Messiah and driving him into the wilderness. This Spirit-endowed one fulfills the words spoken earlier, centuries earlier by another prophet, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11. And here in Isaiah 11, you should think that it is quite likely that the prophet Isaiah is actually referring to our text in 1 Samuel 16. Isaiah writes this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Then we get a description. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. This stunning choice, where the one that the builders, the religious and political leaders have rejected, becomes the cornerstone, Psalm 118 tells us, this is the Lord's doing. 
And it is marvelous in our eyes. Right? Thus our eyes, all of our limited and opaque perspectives, are to be trained to see as the Lord sees. To see aright is to walk by faith, not by sight. You're destined to be a kind of seer, right? Because when the Lord appears, 1 John tells us, we will see him as he is. And, and then he goes on to say, therefore we have to purify ourselves, even as he is pure. Because there's internal contaminants which prohibit us from seeing. This is our goal. The goal of the Christian life is to see properly. To see what God has done and to marvel. And to delight in these surprising choices. This decenters us, does it not? Because God does things in such a way where we find out, oh, I thought I was taking the side of the angels here, but maybe I was on the wrong side, right? There's, there's so much paradoxical about the Christian life that you can find yourself on the wrong side of these paradoxes, right? Where you think you're upholding righteousness and you, you look back and say, I, I, actually, I think I was on the wrong side there. So it's very important for us to be able to, to be decentered this way, to delight in a God who's going to upend convention. God who chooses David, who chose David's greater son, and guess what? He chose you, and he chose me. Praise be to the God who sees and who chooses, not as man sees, but according to his own delightful and subversive wisdom. Amen.